we go. Welcome to the True Sight Podcast by Oracle's Elixir, your source for in-depth analytical coverage of professional League of Legends and the rest of the esports world. I'm Tim Magic Sevenhusen, and my guest today is Immortals Academy head coach Jensen Go. Welcome back to the show, Jensen. Glad to be here once again. I think this has always been a always appreciate the opportunity to to appear on these shows. So, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, last time you were on was uh, we were just looking it up, episode twelve. We're now in episode thirty-one. I'd say it's that's a pretty decent, you know, little jump of time. So, uh, looking forward to kind of catching up with you a bit. Why don't we just lead off by by hearing a little bit about what you've been up to since the Immortals Academy uh, season ended back during Proving Grounds? Have you had some time away? Have you been really busy the whole time through? I I've pretty much been stuck in stuck in LA. Didn't choose to travel or do anything. Of course, with COVID going around. Uh, mm-hmm. Not traveling is is the is the wise and I would think responsible thing thing to do in general. And uh, other than that, has been watching MSI for me and doing prep and getting ready for for the summer split. Of course, with the roster changes that we announced, I've been rather busy. So I wanted I was actually planning to do like a whole bunch of MSI content, um, but my my work schedule actually kept me from keeping up with putting out the content as much as I would have liked to. Do you want to jump in and talk about those changes and, and talk about the academy stuff, or, or do you want to save that for later? Sure, we, we can go in any order. Yeah, we can, we can talk let's... about the, the changes now. We're so flexible, those, flexible um, humans. For those who haven't been following, there's been two major changes. The first is that Pretty has obtained any residency. So our mid laner Pretty, uh, if you have been watching the Core JJ in the houses, he's been absolutely crushing it in in those in houses, uh, and he is now con- considered an any resident. Because he's uh, technically linked to Oceania, he his dad is Ocean is from is from Oz, so he actually has a uh, he's able to be considered an, an any resident through that. And the second big change, I think, is the one that had a lot of buzz around it. I I think that was a thread on um, Reddit as well. Is that we picked up Viper and Under for Top and Jungle. So yeah, and they had been playing a... on New York, Norg, right? And, and Viper and Anda were kind of the, the, the two strongest players in Norg winning Proving Grounds and actually beating out a whole bunch of Academy teams. So it was a pretty big deal for you guys to pick them up. Yeah, definitely. And to go back to what we mentioned in, or what I mentioned in episode 12, where, when we looked at the project of Immortals Academy, we weren't necessarily looking at this as that, yeah, we're here to scout the, the, the young talent, the 17-year-olds and stuff like that. We had a very different direction for Immortals Academy. Parity with the LCS team to provide a very strong training partner for them was one of the, the goals we had in mind. And this change is definitely in line with it, especially with how the method Especially with how the meta is shifting, we wanted to be able to be able to play a wider range of strategies to help the LCS team emulate a larger range of opponents. Okay, yeah. So Viper and Anna being strong training partners, and I'm sure there's there's also some element of like pushing the LCS roster and be like, uh, you know, you, you gotta work hard to retain your spot. But that's always a balancing act, I'm sure, as a coach of like you don't want the LCS starters to feel threatened, and maybe that introduces nerves or something like that that makes them actually play worse. Like, how do you balance that versus like not wanting to threaten them too much, but also wanting to push them and motivate them? 
Well, technically, that's a, that's a question for, for Kyoto to answer. <laughs> my job is to make them as threatening as possible in this case, right? So it's not my job to balance it. My job is to make them as good as possible for so sure. that they're really threatening and raring to go for the LCS team spot, be it in terms of their understanding of, of the game, game management, or in their ability to execute the laning phase. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, you know, I think there's a little bit of that healthy healthy competition inside the org. You don't want to make it too adversarial, but you do want to be able to like, like, Hey, we're, we're sister teams, but we want to beat each other. <laughs> we want to, we want to, you know, prove that, that I'm here, that I'm ready to, to jump up if the opportunity presents itself. I think that the big question that I have with this move, um, obviously middle of the year changes are, are a little harder to pull off than start of the year. You know, contracts are a little different things like that. Why, why does this move happen mid year? And what's different now compared to November, December, when you were putting the rosters together in the first place? So, um, when we first started off the roster, I was given one piece to work with, right? I was given a jungler to work with, so we weren't looking to pick up players in the position. And I do believe that Viper was not looking to actively join an academy team at that point mm -hmm. of time. Like, when I interviewed him and, and, and I talked to him, and, hey, what was going on for the first split? He told me that he just wanted to take some time away from the scene. He didn't really feel like jumping right back into the academy mm -hmm. after his split with FlyQuest. Was it FlyQuest, I believe? Yeah. In the previous year. So he wanted to to take some time off, and um, so it's just a question of availability. So they went in there, they played a no orc, they proved themselves to be assets to whichever team that was willing to pick them up, and this is a mid 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 season change effectively, right? Where what we have is a very short off season period, and then now with the with the next regular season starting off on second June. I hope that's public information already. I, I do so. believe I do believe <laughs> it should be right. If not, oops, I'm sorry, right? <laughs> but um, that, that's a very short time frame to work with. So in fact, we are, we're running risks in terms of like, okay, we, can we bring them into the country in time? Um, what's the visa situation going to be looking like? There's quite a few logistical challenges around getting a player in in the mid season. But nonetheless, we decided, hey, this is what our this is our objective. This is what we're trying to do. This is how we fell short. Um, in spring split, not to say that we fell terribly short of it, right? I think, in fact, maybe if yeah. we were to look back at our spring split, we had two very big issues. The first is we had very serious performance issues on stage, where we were uh, kind of crushing everybody in scrims. Uh, and in fact, we were able to take games off some of the, the, the top LCS teams in scrims as well at the point of time. When we were able to play our style, when we were able to play within our champion pool, we were very effective at doing that. But when we when we went on the stage, we were played against the these teams from the uh from the amateur scene. They will play much different. They will play mm -hmm. in a very they will play in their own style and we had some difficulty adapting and recognizing how they wanted to play and adapting to that. On top of that there was all the nerf issues as well. Uh we had to reschedule our games twice and not to use this on as an excuse or anything, but in the first series against EGP, when we went in there, they drank coffee, they got caffeinated and everything. Then our game got delayed. So by the time we played our game, the, the players' caffeine crashed and everything. So mm -hmm. it was quite rough in terms of the performance aspects. But um, it's the strategic aspects that what we really had to change. If you look at the champion pools we were playing, we were very limited. And in terms of showcasing, like uh, being able to showcase how good of a player pretty how good of a player Pretty is, how good of a player Keith is, how good of a player um, Joey is, we weren't necessarily able to do that because we're very restricted into playing one particular style. And I think this is something that you talk about quite a fair bit, that Pretty's best game, and this is something that I actually felt it was the second best game, the best one was Syndra, right? During the regular split of, of Academy, was the one where he played Galio against Cloud9. And this is one of the reasons why I like Pretty so much. When when I worked with him back, back in Mad Lions, or 
uh, yeah, Matt Lyons in 2019. I looked at it as, okay, this guy is the amount of intangibles he brings to the game, his game understanding, his ability to read the map, coordinate people on the map is uh, par none from what I've seen in my career coaching so far. So when we brought him over, it's like, this is the style that we want to play. Not to say that he can't play the mages, not to say that, that he can't play the assassins. We showed off a very strong echo game. If you've been watching in-houses, his Akali is definitely cracked out the Wazoo as well. His and least sense coming comes around. To playing the, yeah, and when it comes to playing like the Galio set style champions as well, he's definitely really, really strong at being able to play and impact the map. So we were very limited to saying that, and I think the, the, the casting team picked up on that, right? It's not that he can only play Orianna, but he has to play Orianna if the team wants to win. So we need to, to diversify out, and especially if you look at how the meta is shifting from spring to summer, and we can talk a little bit about that as we move into the MSI discussion, uh, we needed to be able to play a wider variety of champions. So for, for some of these players, we set them benchmarks, okay, these are goals and these are things that you have to achieve, and um, some of those things were necessary hit, and we ended up just uh, fumble into playing one specific style. That's that's the point where we realized that, okay, Viper's available, Viper plays all these champions, and picking up Viper will make it difficult for teams to prep against us, it make teams difficult to draft against us, and in terms of being able to fulfill the role of being an effective practice partner, we will be able to play all these flex picks now, we will be able to do all these things to provide the LCS team a level of parity and solid practice going into the summer split for LCS. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think what you know, I'm I'm still waiting for more academy moves to kind of settle in. I don't know that there are that many left, but I, I'm sure there are a few that haven't been revealed yet. But like looking at <clears throat> the way the academy landscape is going to shake out for summer, adding Viper and Anda, even if you don't call them a strict upgrade, which I think you can. I think you can call them an upgrade uh, as players on on what you guys had before, but we won't, don't need to get into that. But even even if you just look at the styles they play, with Viper being such a carry-intensive player, and not that he only has to carry, but that he's so good at that, and Anda being an enabler on that, um, that what that does with Pretty, like the interaction between Viper and Pretty as your solo lanes, makes your team really, really interesting. And I can't wait to see how that kind of plays out, because like you're saying, Pretty being able to play these different styles, being able to do a lot of enabling work, Viper wanting to get those resources and be enabled, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense on paper, and it's going to make you guys a lot of fun to watch, so really looking forward to that. Um, in terms of, of Pretty specifically, and, and his NA residency, you know, I, I'm not sure how much you can speak to the LCS side of this, but you know, one of the things that would have jumped into people's minds right away when they heard about this was, oh, does that mean they can promote him to LCS now over Insanity and all this kind of stuff? And then, of course, everybody has to explain they already had an import slot available, so it didn't actually change that. Like, There are all these different pieces to it, but you have to imagine that it does change the picture a little bit. From your perspective, how does his change to NA residency influence kind of the overall plans uh, for like promotion or maybe sharing a little bit of stage time going forward? Uh, I don't think I'm in a position to comment on this issue. Like I said, as my position as an academy coach, my job is to help. My job is to shield for Pretty, right? My job is to go out there and tell the LCS team, hey, Pretty is really good. He's doing really well. These are things that he can do. This is how he can help the LCS team win more mm -hmm. games. But at the end of the day, it's the LCS team's uh, jurisdiction as to what they want to do. This is when they want to bring the players in. This is how they're managing the, the team dynamic and what's happening over there. And bringing Pretty in, this is a guy who brings in... Um, he's not... He is somebody you can you can plug and play, but he's somebody who's going to bring a... Bring... Um, bring... Lots of communication mm -hmm. to the table. And he has been, he has been playing some of the scrims 
with with the LCS team during while while we were on break. So we, we only just started scrimming this week. So before that, there's points of time where the LCS team, hey, okay, let's get let's give one game to pretty and then see how we how, see how mm-hmm. it does in those games. Um, so I don't know what the, the plans are like with regards to that, but. Is it possible that Pretty moves out to LCS? Is possible. Is it possible that another LCS team comes over there and says that, hey, we need a mid lane in the middle of a split, and then they come and buy a Pretty in the middle of it? That might happen as well. So these are possibilities that we that I I have to I I might need to plan for. Yeah, your your job is to to make him uh, as appealing as possible, both internally and externally, and then whether other people buy or not is up to them, I guess. You know, so <laughs> you just be a good salesman and 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 develop the product, right? Uh, <laughs> it feels very dehumanizing to call him a product, but that is what it is. So yeah, looking forward to seeing what you guys pull out this summer. Uh, can't wait to watch all of that, and there are going to be so many more games to watch for Academy. Thirty-six man, games, man. double round robin best of two, which double is actually Robin's really exciting. I mean, do, yeah. do you want to get into that a little bit? Because uh, I think that this sure. is such an interesting, it's so different, right? Because the last time we talked about it, we talked about having to to coach in crisis mode. The moment you hit the ground, we play single robin run robin best of ones, and then straight away you have every game matters yep. so much because you just play one one a single round robin so all of a sudden like we lost to eg right and i think that we're the only team that lost to eg in the regular season <laughs> and then after we lost uh which felt really bad at the time but at looking back in hindsight it's like yeah but they were actually kind of good they just didn't know it yet at the point of time they're still kind of all over the place but they were still <laughs> figuring things out i think they had very strong individual yeah. pieces but they just yeah, weren't yeah. coming together as a team at the point of time right yeah and um, then we, we lost to the best of funds and straight away we're in, we're in crisis mode where, yeah. oh, okay, if we don't win now, we might not be able to qualify for proving grounds. And whether it might have been a, the, the better decision given the, the results of the teams hmm. and the amount of improvement that they made from having to play all the other tournaments yeah. for, for the four teams that didn't make it initially, that might have been a, a better outcome. But, yeah. Um, Hindsight. Now that we have all these things, not only I don't have to like, okay, we really have to win the game now. Let's just go with the the easiest thing to play. Let's just draft the Azir. Let's just draft some scaling. We can definitely try more exciting things. As we can try so much more interest, so many more interesting things. And definitely with the players that I have, I'm going to be given so much more space to to innovate in draft and allow the players to showcase more unique skill sets that are that might not exist within the meta itself. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, the higher volume of games, I'm just like hoping I'll be able to actually watch them all, uh, (laughs) to keep giving the coverage that I do, but, uh, I'm sure. And I think like the fact that it's this many games, but it's coming as best of twos, I think that helps to deal with some of the problems that can sometimes come with having a really packed schedule. Like the LCS team is now playing three games a week. They have to prep three opponents, right? But if you're playing a best of two, that's two games, but you only have to prep one opponent, which, and and it's all it's on the same day. So your scrim schedule is easier to manage. Uh, you know, you're not overloading kind of different styles and stuff like that. So I think it's a lot better for development, especially. But I'm not sure if uh, if if you have any different perspective on that. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think an academy is a lot more about fixing your own problems rather than figuring out, okay, yeah. these are very specific things that we want to do to, to beat other teams, right? Whereas LCS teams, there's a lot more in-depth scouting. It's like, this is what they do level one. This is the styles for particular things. And these are the set pieces and things that we can do to to identify and then to execute the, the relevant counterplay towards the set pieces as well with regards to how certain teams approach, approach the map. Yeah. Cool. Well... 
let's move on to stuff that is a little more immediately relevant. All this Academy stuff is, is very exciting, but you know, it doesn't really kick in for a while yet. Uh, MSI obviously is going on. Uh, we had, you know, I've been doing daily recaps on Oracle's Elixir, uh, both as, as written recaps and in, in videos and so on, talking about all that, but um, really in my own little echo chamber of it. <laughs> and it's always good to get other people's takes on what's been happening, what might come up next, uh, how are different people performing. And I think it's, it, especially just in the last day or two, there's been a lot of talk about different aspects of the meta. Um, and, and we'd love to get your take as a coach on the meta metagame uh, that we've been seeing at MSI. So, uh, you know, Rumble specifically as kind of the most picked and banned champion. I don't think it's 100% anymore, but it's still it's still very close. Uh, do you think Rumble Jungle is still OP, or is it something that's that's getting starting to get overrated, and, and maybe people need to back off of it and not play it quite so much? I think it's definitely a very strong pick, and I think that whenever you see these international events, right, it always happens in three stages. If now that they do the planes format, there's three stages. There's a planes section mm-hmm. of it, but you have much um, where you have teams that aren't as good playing all these champions, and then you see a various, a very different read on the meta, right? Yeah. Like, I want to look back at, like, roles, and then if you look at the playing stages, you see, like, these ridiculously high priority on champions like Lucian, they're, like, just popping up, and then once you go to the main stage, these champions just completely disappear the face of the earth, and then there's the main stage itself, where you see the group stage meta, which kind of, like, seeps into the quarterfinals, and then when you go into the best of fives, the semifinals and the finals, it evolves into this old meta once again. So yeah. how the meta, there's always a progression of a meta throughout the, the international events um, from the playing stages where, where you have a different read on particular champions. And I think that I want to bring Freak Street into this, right? Because sure. I think he presented it in a very interesting way. He, pre- he presented it in a way where people are talking about statistical illiteracy and stuff like that. But I'm going to help him repackage the argument, right? That if you were to remove RNG's wins from it, what you realize that when, if you are well, a team... That's maybe not before we get into picking it apart, we should just make sure everybody understands kind of what we're referring to. Sure. So, so Freak made a tweet that was drawing out stats from a Reddit post where it said, hey, here Rumble Jungle stats. If you take away the RNG games, which the claim is RNG would have won all these games whether they played Rumble or not. So take those Rumble wins out and now it actually has a really negative win rate. And so his claim was, hey, Rumble, he actually said Rumble's a good mid laner, a bad jungler, draft better is what he said. So he's being, you know, classic freak confrontational style. But this was his claim. You take away the RNG wins, Rumble Jungle isn't actually good on its own. So and, continue. And my <laughs> point with this is that there's always this class of champions, right? Um, this is definitely a better name for it, but I call, call them the finesse champions, where they're have actually been a particular class of AD carries that have always fell under this category, right? So if you look at Varus's stats, you would see a very similar story as well, where if you see at MSI, Varus is one of the top contested picks as well, but he has only four wins and five uh, and five losses. And once again, if you take away the, the tier one teams that have played this, so it would be, uh, I think, uh, Gala played him once, Karzi played him once, and uh, I believe that... Uh, Go split him once, right? Mm. Then he goes down to one win and five losses, right? So it's a similar story over here where you have these champions where when they're played by very high tier teams, they do really well. But then when they're played by teams that uh, aren't able to, to get the level of execution to execute them, then they aren't able to do as well with them. So Rumble might be in a very similar category. And, and if I were to recall this Varus and Ash, I do recall like um, last year, I believe it was... Was it spring split or summer split? Where Ash was like two and eight in the in the yeah. ULCS, in the in the LEC, whereas Ash was absolutely dominant in the Asian leagues, because champions like that is if 
they get a hit, which they should be by virtue of the kit. They are very strong lane bullies. They should be able to get a hit. They will be able to take a lead, and they will be able to, to um, you should be able to to use that lead to create advantages on the map, right? But the problem with these champions is that once you start to fall behind, and there's a lot of ways that you can attack them, right? With particular set pieces in the game as well, and you have to know all these set pieces and you know how to deal with them accordingly. If not, you will start to fall behind and you find it very difficult for you to start to control the map once again. Now, Rumble might be a similar story in this case. While he's not exactly like the, the Archer class of champions, which is like Ash and Varus, he is very gated by having a, um, an ultimate. He really wants the ultimate to teamfight in the later stages of the game. And the, the early clear might be... Sus um, he might be vulnerable to being attacked in the early stages of the clear. I mean, I'm not a rumble expert, I'm not a jungle expert, sure. so I'm just throwing up possible reasons why we might see this difference in execution, right? But as compared to a Morgana, which is what you see is what you get. You hit the bind, you land the <laughs> bind, nine second cooldown, simple, easy, effective. Press the W, clear the minions in the middle of a team fight on top of a bind. People are engaging, I press R, people are getting engaged on, I press E. Right, <laughs> what you see is what you get. Very yeah. simple, very very simple champion to execute. Yeah. It... So, sorry, go, go ahead. So, so the, the contrast here is that a champion like Morgana, you will see her win rate be, be more cons consistent throughout the tiers, whereas a champion like Rumble, which is I, I would think is definitely harder that harder to execute given the nature of the kit, um, you would see that the, the the top teams they will be able to do very well with him and they will be able to utilize his raw power really well. Whereas teams that kind of like fumble here and there, then you would see the win rate for the, this is a lot more pronounced. Yeah, I think <clears throat> Rumble is, is really interesting as a jungler because the types of the types of things he brings to a team comp are so different from what you normally get from a jungler, right? Like what, what, what Rumble brings is obviously really high clear speed, but you can get that from a bunch of different junglers. But really, it's about his his huge damage output and especially his ultimate in the team fights, right? Uh, and and being able to use that ultimate on pretty low cooldown. Uh, and you don't normally draft a jungler who's all about using his ultimate in skirmishes and team fights. Normally, you have someone who can do you know who has more ganking power in CC, someone who can face check, someone who can do a variety of more standard things. It's it's a really unusual profile. So you need a different kind of a team composition around it. And you need to play a different way to to kind of like incorporate that into the comp. So like having an AD mid is one part of it. People have been talking about AP jungle AD mid is, is one feature of this meta, but it's a lot more than that, right? If you're drafting for damage in the jungle instead of drafting for utility or face checking or whatever it's going to be, uh, it, it just changes. And I think the I think that plays a lot into what you're saying about the, the higher quality the team is, the stronger just fundamental understanding of the game they have. So the, the more easily they're able to adapt to our jungler doesn't face check, our jungler doesn't, you know, engage fights in the typical way. <laughs> like, yes, Rumble kind of engages this ultimate, but it's, it's a little, it's a very different type of engage, at least. Um, so therefore we have to do, you know, different people have to take on different pieces of what, what our team needs to execute. So uh, I think it is very different, but I, I think it definitely feels like a very strong champion. And I think as the tournament plays out, uh, I think there, there's, you know, one camp that might be saying, hey, Rumble looks like it's falling off a little bit and maybe it's going to go away a little in the meta. I think it might even go the other way that the, the junglers have needed a lot of time to get comfortable with him because he plays in a different way as well. And his ultimate is kind of weird to use. 
Um, you know, you, you mentioned the NA in-houses before. I've seen some junglers playing in that and watching their POVs trying to pick up the rumble and, like, the alts sometimes just, huh? <laughs> Where were you trying to go with that? You just clicked in the wrong way. Um, just because it's hard to pick up, right? Like, that's not flame on them. They're just, <laughs> it, it takes uh, it takes some some time and some some uh, some reps on the champion to figure it out. So I think as as these players get more time on it, as the teams get more time on it, it might even become that much more of a, a of a feature of the meta. It's hard to say. Uh, some of the other champions that have been really highly prioritized are things like Varus and Jace. Um, why do you think those, like kind of the, the, the range and poke kind of champions are, are getting so much priority in this meta? I think Zoe um, as well. part of it is a response to Morgana's prevalence in the meta. And the first mm. response is, okay, Morgana is a champion, and Morgana's weakness, especially in support, has always been against poke, right? Because she's, she's kind of squishy, and you can one-shot her with if these poke champions do get far ahead enough, and they go and they really stack mm. the lethality up. Um, and I think the Varus and Jace, both of these these champions, they are, they are lane bullies of sorts. They're both range bullies. They get, prior, they get priority in a lot of scenarios, and this enables you to play for the jungler very effectively. And while the jungler meta has kind of shifted, into Morgana and Rumble. Uh, it still is a lot about trying to outpace the opponent jungler and then playing for the invade on the opponent's raptors or, or the wolves accordingly and trying to create leads through that, right? And the, these champions are very, very effective at enabling that because they're able to, to fight for priority. In the case of Jace, I think it's a it's a safe blind pick. You can pick it. He gets priority into most matchups. Knockout, Aurelia, and Nocturne, I believe. Um, Nocturne is also very, another very interesting pick because it's been, it's been so low yeah. given this theory that I'm putting forward, right? That these are the champions that are seeing this level of priority that are being picked for them. Whereas Varus is a similar story in the bot, bot lane as well. If, especially on red side, if you get Varus and you get a counter pick support, or if you go Varus and your opponent goes Kai'Sa, they almost always force to pair that with, a, with an engaged support. So you can just mm -hmm. very easily pick the Brahma Tankench depending on, uh, or the Trash, depending on what's available for your composition at the point of time. And you will be able to have a very strong lane bully presence, go for and enable your jungler to, to play for the camps on the bottom side of the map. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. Uh, I think somewhat being able to play non-committally is probably good against things like Rumble or even Morgana as well, like being able to play from enough range to, to dodge the bindings, being able to play from enough range that like you don't have to throw your body in and get the ult dropped in, on top of you in a really easy way. Uh, so, you know, meta and counter meta to some extent may be part of it. Interestingly uh, enough, though, I'm not sure how the priority... So we say that these are both very skill-expressive champions, but I'm not sure how the priority of these champions will change as the tournament progresses along. Mm -hmm. Because um, that's... If if we see like Diana was the other big uh, was the other AP jungler that people were talking about before MSI, but we ha but we haven't really seen her being played all that much. But um, it's two there's there's two elements of this right. Varus is really good against Morgana, but he's actually kind of bad against Rumble if okay. you don't have the trash to help you out. Right, you yeah. Don't have trash Getting to off the alt is hard, out, yeah. Right? <laughs> so and if we see like a resurgence of like champions like Wukong, we see some set moving around. If Akali becomes a thing again, the game actually can be quite difficult for for Varus to play. So yeah. the question is, am I picking this? And is you end up with a trade-off, right? I'm picking this, I'm going to be enabling this parts of the early game. And am I enabling a certain counterplay, right? Are we going to see a shift in the, the meta, like the way we saw a shift in 2018, right? Where mm -hmm. all of a sudden pe people realize that, okay, it's the soul lanes that really matter in this meta. And I would actually say that we are seeing a shift 
towards that direction, where solar lanes are starting to get a much higher emphasis. Um, flex picks are going to become very, very relevant. You're going to see a shift away from, from the mages, and all these diving champions are going to be really strong. Maybe Nocturne, once again, I didn't check who was playing the Nocturne, um, but if these champions are, are around, these immobile AD carries, they'll find it a lot more difficult to play. I think we saw that Jinx was um, quite a prior pick, in 11.6, there was the playoff patch for all of these teams. But then once you shift yeah. into MSI, we saw all these champions, all these diving capabilities come out. The immobility carries became more difficult to play. So I was actually kind of surprised that Varus had still such a high priority. Yeah, and, and I mean, to be fair, we're talking a lot about Varus, but Kaisa had a much higher presence, right? Uh, Kaisa had 27 games played. Varus only had nine, but it was banned a lot. Um, so I think Varus was the most yeah. banned champion. No, Renekton uh, was the most no. Banned, right? Yeah, Renekton banned the most, Morgana, and then Rumble Varus the same. Um, and then you have Lee Sin after that. But <clears throat> yeah, so like Varus wasn't actually played that much compared to Kaisa getting played a lot, Tristana getting played a lot, uh, bot lane. So yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely an interesting thing. Um, <clears throat> I also had a lot of Nar and Renekton presence that people are going to, you know, some people are going to love and some people are going to hate. <laughs> Nar and Renekton hey. being polarizing champions for some reason. Speaking of the meta, that, that's something that we can talk a little bit more about, right? Like how wh how we got here and why is it that some of these champions are so polarizing? And I think that uh, this kind of ties into the discussion about C9 later on, but this is about the two schools of thought on how mm -hmm. you want to approach the game right now. Right, there's one school of thought, whereas the we, we call it I, I call it the the tempo school of thought, right? I mean, I I really tempo, dislike yeah. the word tempo, but the idea here is that <laughs> what you're playing for is that there's this resource in a game called map control. It doesn't appear on the goal screen. It doesn't appear in the exp bar. Is this idea that if you're hit on the side lanes, you have a deeper side lane push, you are then able to proactively control the map. You can play for opponents' camps. You will be able to use that to translate into set up for objectives. It's kind of mm -hmm. like a hidden resource, right? Yeah. And if I always um draw the analogy of like starcraft when i thought when i talk about this right where like zerg if, if you play you're a man zerg, of culture i actually played tyrant so i i played i i, I didn't play well, that yeah. right but <laughs> if you played zerg map control was a very important element of this because your ability to, to expand and reach the, the other the the other corners of the map was very important and your ability to 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 spread the creep so why is it that you would build um attacking units early on to take control of the map when you can just be expanding bases and store enough lava to, to defend a big push from your opponent is that you wanted to be able to get access to certain areas of the map so that you are able to hit your opponent from multiple angles later on if they were trying to make a push out onto the map itself. Now once again, for me to go into very... I don't even know why I started on this angle, right? Because this would take me hours hours to explain. But my point is there's this hidden uh, resource called map control. and there is a school of thought that really values this, right? And be it, mm -hmm. they call it tempo, they call it being a hill and silence or, or, or whatever. There's an essence to it, Sid. Whereas there's another school of thought where the idea is we are playing for farm efficiency, where the, this school of thought favors the, the scaling picks a lot more. Mm -hmm. They favor champions that have a much higher area of influence. And they, they favor the fact that, um, and their counter argument to the, to the uh, map control school of thought is that eventually the efficiency of our champions will allow us to win fights 4v5. So it doesn't matter that you can create a manpower advantage, the nature of our compositions will be able to beat this out, right? And then you factor in the time factor of it, and then you have to figure out, okay, where do these, these windows line up exactly between 
between these two, two schools, schools of thought. And based on the meta, based on, on how the items shift, you would see this window shift accordingly. And sometimes one school of thought will prevail out over the others, right? Which is yeah. why sometimes we see Azure Oriana being the strongest champions in the meta, which uh, <laughs> not everybody's favorite meta, right? The, the Corky hmm. Azure meta, right? And then you see some metas where uh, the Renek has tends to do really well. You see yep. champions like the uh, Set and the Gala in the mid lane; they have a much higher priority. Where map control is the where where you see like double, triple global kind of team compositions. Where map control is what you need to succeed in the meta. So I think that there's two ways you can approach the game at at the moment. And mastering one is one way to really get get good at mastering one or the other is one way to get really good at the game. Yeah, and and I think the the balance between the two and which is more important does depend on things like um, you know like uh, fundamental game design things like the time time between dragons or even the time the respawn time on on jungle camps right like the longer time you have between big neutral objectives spawning the more time you can play with the map influence and make small incremental gains on working on the turrets stealing jungle camps um, setting up vision control to, to spot out mistakes but the shorter the time is between dragons, which is what the game has been trending towards for a while now, they reduced the time when dragon respawns and, and so on and made dragon souls so the dragons are that much more influential on the game. And that, to some extent, reduces the ability to play the map control game because it means the team that wants to just farm in 5v5 has more opportunities to force the 5v5s more, more often, right? So I think that's something that there has been some discussion I've seen from, from certain coaching uh, areas in the last couple of weeks saying like, hey, we'd actually really like to have an extra minute on the dragon response because the map control game is more interesting to us or whatever it's going to be. I actually think the map control game is fine as it is now, right? Oh yeah, I'm not, it's, I'm not saying it's not saying it's the place the, the the on the meta. gradient, right? Right, I, and I think that this is a video that I did, and I think that if people are talking about that point, I I, I don't want to flame people and stuff like that, but I think that the understanding of map control, if you just watch how the LPL has evolved from uh, Worlds to this point, you will see um, a contrast as to how people approach the, okay, we're going to be, so dumb one, how they played at Worlds and how they play now, I think is effectively the same, right? Um, and the way I broke it down is that there's three phases towards Drake's setup, right? There's the lull period, which is five minutes before Drake spawns, and I'm talking about, and this refers to Drake 3, Drake 4, right? The the mid-game sure. Drakes, not the yeah. not the laning phase Drakes. Yeah. Um, there's the five minutes to about two minutes before Drake spawns period, and this is what I call the, the, the lull phase, where mm -hmm. um, the, the teams that subscribe to Dumb One style of play, so once again, it's the efficiency, the, the, the goal efficiency style of play, is that you want to play on three lanes, you want to maximize farm, you want to maximize farms, you want to just be be playing this as downtime as much as possible. And then you move on to two minutes before it, where you just want to set the waves to neutral, and then group as five, one minute before the Drake, and then ARAM for about a minute, so that you get control of the river area before the Drake, and then that gives you setup and that lets you secure the Drake. And Dumb One was very successful with that, uh, winning roles with the strategy, in part because they were really, really good at getting the first two Drakes, right? So sure. with the way Canyon was, was parted, in, and the way they played around Canyon in, uh, during Worlds itself. So nothing much has changed from Dumb One. I still see that they have been approaching the game in still, in still the same way. But the way the LPL teams have been approaching this is kind of different, right? In the past, they would play on two lanes where you see them not value the Drakes as highly. They value, value Rift Hero a lot more. And they'll aim to break the, the top lane tower to try to create um, what I call the plus on the map. So this is where the map control element comes of it, where what where they value the Rift Hero more because this enables them to open up the map, give them gives them access to jungle camps, and it allows them to start attacking the opponents on the map. And you would see the way that they play is that they will play very aggressively on, on, on two lanes. In this case, 
they were approaching Dortmund's approach by cross-mapping against them. So in the finals, if you watch game one of Suning versus Dortmund, what happened was that when Dortmund went for Drake 3 and they grouped as 5, Suning would just push both side lane waves and then they'll, they'll create um, deep pushes in both both those areas. And they tried to use that to create further plays down, down the road. But the problem was that because of how quickly Dortmund was doing the Drakes, the next Drake was Soul Point. And even if it meant losing your top lane inhibitor uh, in exchange for Soul, it will, if it was the Ocean Soul or anything but a Cloud Soul, it would probably be worth it at a point of time. But if you see how the LPLs evolve, now moving to the MSI, what they're doing is that they are hitting a dumb one in the face of the game. So phase one, the lull phase, right? Uh, this is where the LPL teams has always been very effective against them because they're creating picks against the, the three lane setups. They're always going to be able to walk in and take camps away from the opponents. Um, but it's the second phase where Dalmon is just trying to set the, the lanes to neutral, where now the LPL teams are playing very aggressively on the top side of the map to push that really deep in, so that now one minute before the Drake, Dalmon is forced, or anybody subscribing to the Dalmon school of thought, they are forced to answer that wave on the top side of the map, and because of that, the LPL team will then be able to pull four or five people towards the Drake and get set up on the dragon uh, and get set up on the neutral objective first. Yeah, if if so actually, if someone wants a really good example of that, you can look at Cloud9 securing this, the Dragon Soul against uh, Detonation Focus Me in their second game. Cloud9 did exactly this, and Dead FM were like way too early on their mid lane contesting, and it was literally a free soul that Dead FM should have been able to fight for. So, really good example there if you want to look it up. So. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted your yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier for if I have, like, Rifkit open and like, they're just drawing this. This is something that yeah. I, I do with players all the time. But, I mean, if you, if you want, you can check out my YouTube video, and I explain this in much more detail, where I show exactly these are the timings, and this is where the LPL teams can hit um, the, the dumb one-style teams, right, who try to play for, for farm efficiency and and, and for, for all, all, all these sort of good jazz. Yeah. But, yeah, this is where I, I think the, the meta has kind of shifted, where... Now, this is, I think there's a discussion as well, like, what's more worth it? Is it the first trick that, that's more worth it, or is it the first referral that, that's more worth it, right? <laughs> and if we look at, so it's, it's the same idea, right? That the, the efficiency school of thought and the map control school of thought. The map control school of thought is always going to say that, yeah, it's all about um, map control. We have to get Harrow, or rather Harrow is more important because Harrow gives you access to breaking a side lane turret. And allows you to start to take things on the map. Whereas the efficiency side of the the, the equation looks at Harrow and, and thinks about it. Okay, if I'm going to be giving up, say, two plates bought in, in exchange for Harrow, I'm only getting two plates back, and I'm giving up all these things at the same time. Then it's not worth to go for Rift Harrow, right. right? And they would say that we would prefer to go for Drake in the in these scenarios most of the yeah. time. And anybody who follows me on Twitter or in a lot of other places or hangs out in the Oracle's Elixir Discord knows how often I like to spam about Herald, the first Herald, in my opinion, being so much more valuable than the first dragon. So <laughs> I, you know which school of thought I fall into if you've, if you've ever seen me throw that H1 greater than FT spam there. But, <laughs> but there are valid approaches on both sides of it. I think that's fair to say. Uh, so th that, this game theory has been, been a lot of fun to talk about, but I think uh, you know, uh, it'd be good to get into some of the more details of, of the actual teams still playing at MSI because we have you know, these different clashes between different styles. And I think the group stage was a really interesting opportunity to kind of see um, which uh, which teams kind of like lived up to the expectations we might have had of them, which ones kind of fell below expectations. Who, Which team, of the ones that actually qualified to MSI, which team did you have as like your number one team? Who who did you think was going to win the whole thing coming in? Oh, RNG. We got all yeah. 
Well, strong confidence. So Kelsey Moser was on the show last week. She also said RNG. A lot of the public discourse has been about Damwon. And I've, uh, you know, I, I've fallen a little bit on the side of Damwon. Do, do you think we learned much about those two teams from the group stage? Or was it just kind of like, uh, not not a whole lot to see here on, on either of them? I mean, I think for RNG, so there's a whole bunch of... There's not really that much to see there. I think yeah. they re- didn't really get tested in the group stage. And even if um, Gammy Sports were to attend, I don't really think Gammy Sports might have been able to really test RNG. Although they might have taken off maybe a game. Oh, if if Gam if Gam Esports attended, it would be just two best of ones, right? Yeah. Maybe they might have been able to to take off a game just by playing how Vietnam always does. Yeah. Um, but high variance. I don't really think we saw. <laughs> uh, high variance is one way to put it. High variance is one way to put it. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't really think it's uh we we got a we got a true true test of how RNG plays right because we didn't really get to see any of the stylistic um, map control versus farm efficiency school of thought battle come into play. But when we saw it from, from Damwon, which is interesting because Damwon played against Cloud9, right? Where where I think Cloud9 is, is a little bit of both at this point of time. And I think that Cloud9 struggles come from, from their lack of identity. Do we want to be be going into the, the, the map control school of thought or do we want to be going to the farm efficiency school of thought? So I didn't really learn that much about RNG, but like I was watching the series between uh, Damwon and Cloud9 and then Damwon drafted what I thought was an RNG composition, right? They did the Nautilus hmm. Rumble. This was on day six. So this was the second time they played. So they did the Jace top lane, Rumble Jungle and Nautilus support. This is, uh, I would feel it's a textbook RNG comp from this MSI so far and Damwon played it. And this was the game, they, the, the game that the, they lost to Cloud9. And from mm-hmm. the way that they used the Rift Herald, the way that they set up from objective, the, the way that they set up from objectives, I felt that they were taking this composition and not realizing why is it so good for RNG. And they're playing it in Damwon's style of play. But they would take the Herald and they would just use the Herald to break two plate smith for two plate smith instead of using it to completely bust the map open on the top side of, uh, on the top side of the map for the Jace to start moving to create the deep push and then start playing for the opponent's camps at a point of time. So uh, I did learn quite a fair bit, like watching that one play, is that they're still very clearly in the, the school of efficiency. Mm-hmm. It, it, that, that, sorry, that they're still in the farm efficiency school yeah. of thought and how they approach the game. So it would be really interesting when how these two teams play, but I think that the way RNG and the LPL teams have adapted their uh, macro approach towards the game, I do think that they should have the... the uh, they should have things in, more in their favor this time if they were to go up against the, the, the LCK representative. Yeah, I think the the fact that Damwon were trying out that kind of like, I mean, even just really simplifying it down, drafting a Jace for Khan, I mean, he has not been playing those kinds of things. Like, that was what Nuguri did all the time, was smash the lane and just, hey, we've already won 10 minutes in every game just because he was so good at that and the, the rest of the team was so good at that and the meta somewhat leaned more towards it. But but Khan has been a lot more of the, you know, obviously a ton of Scion, um, you know, some just general weak side and play through the bottom side of the map and let, let Khan kind of be okay. Uh, and p- putting him on the Jace and doing something so different stylistically was a pretty clear sign to me that like that they were treating the second round Robin as, well, let's let's try some different things out because the more flexible we can be, the better, right? And if this works, great. If it doesn't work, we've learned from that as well. Uh, so, you know, that and that's not to take away from Cloud9's win because Cloud9 earned that win. Um, but... You know, and I think that kind of plays into to to another kind of angle. On this is you know whether or not you find that loss to Cloud9 concerning for Damwon, and I think you know from from what I'm saying on my side, I find, I don't really find it concerning 
in in the sense that like they can always go back and play the more comfortable style when it's time like well we guess we got win next game and that's all that matters it it's concerning in the sense of like okay it's better if they're good at more styles right if they're equally good at multiple styles and if they aren't able to play that other style well that's a little bit concerning but i don't think that's a new concern because they never really played that way at all this year I would actually think it's a little bit concerning from from my perspective because uh, that one was so dominant with what I call I always call things a strategy and strategy B, right? Like when you sure. reach these style tournaments, you reach the best of five stage, you definitely need two central strategies that are capable of playing around. It's strategy A, play around cannon, start stacking the drakes. They play the, the Zoe mid, play the Syndra mid, very mm-hmm. standard dumb one stuff. We've seen tons of that since Worlds. Uh, they sh- they should be able to still find success with that. But if we are talking about the matchup between Damwon and RNG, right? And I see this game against Cloud9, I don't feel concerned for Damwon against, um, say, maybe a, a PSG or a Cloud, or if they will have, were to repeat the matchup. But if they were to play against RNG, and then RNG figures out the strategy A, and then they have to go to the strategy B, and mm-hmm. then now they say that, okay, um, strategy A didn't work, we have to play RNG's game against them. Then this shows us where the, yeah. the level is right now, in terms of understanding how to play RNG's game against them. So I would say that there's some concerns yeah. for them as the so-called tournament favorites headed into this. But I wouldn't say that, yeah, okay, um, throw everything out of the, win- uh, throw everything <laughs> out of the window, Damwon's not making the semifinals, right? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't go oh no, Cloud9's right better than Damwon. Well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> let's let's not get carried away. Uh, in terms of like the, the, the clash between Damwon and RNG, um, one area that I think Damwon might be able to attack things a bit is just straight up the mid lane matchup, right? Um, we saw Cryon have some struggles, uh, you know, giving up solo kills to players that he should not be giving up solo kills to. Uh, I think just generally not performing at the level that you might expect uh, coming in. Although people who watched LPL really closely, you know, might have had uh, a more realistic expectation for Cryon than, than people who didn't watch it closely might have and just made kind of broad level assumptions. Uh, do you think Cryon is is a liability at all for RNG? Do you think he's going to be okay in the next phase of the tournament? I think he'll definitely be okay. At most, they just shift him back into... They shift him onto set duty or something. There should be more mm. than enough things that he's capable of playing. But interestingly enough, like I was just looking up his stats earlier. His lowest winner is actually on Rumble mid. But I, I don't think we'll be seeing much Rumble mid this tournament anyways. But uh, he has been always been a very stable mage player in the mid lane. Mm-hmm. And... If there's a shift in the meta, we we have to see how that pans out for him. I'm not um I'm not going to do the same thing, right? I'm not I'm not going to read too much into RNG's performance against yeah. PGG and ULL. Like sure he might have gotten so killed by by Chaz and by the Kiana, but I actually think in the matchup, um if if you play some Particularly champions on the Kiana, there's a certain point of time where you are going to get solo killed by the champion, right? And I, if I do recall, like Chess was tweeting about how he solo killed Showmaker as well, like when he was practicing <laughs> Kiana and stuff. Because that's what those champions are meant to do, right? You're supposed to yeah. you pick them, and then you hit level 6, and if you have like the, the serrated Dirk, and you aren't really far behind, you should be able to find yeah. a window to kill them. Yeah, like in Aurelia doing that kind of thing too. Like There are certain champions that just... You hit six and in you go, and and you know as long as long as you play it, as long as both players play it at kind of the expected level, then that's kind of going to be one of the outcomes. But yeah, I think you know Oriana is still in the meta. People are playing it. Crying can go on that. Uh, Victor, you know some of the things that he's more comfortable with. I do wonder in the best of five uh, a stage of the tournament whether he's going to get targeted on that or not, uh, knowing that that his comfort zone is a little smaller than someone like Showmaker. 
but uh, but we'll have to see, and, and we'll have to see what which teams actually get matched up. Whether the, whether RNG and Damwon are the ones in the finals, whether they somehow things go a little funny and they end up in the semis against each other, I think that'll I be a fun thing a, to watch. I actually have a dark horse pick here. I actually think Mad Lions might make the finals, and there mm. is a if we do if we do a ninety fifty ten at the end at, at the end of this, sure. my ten percent is Mad Lions wins MSI. Ooh, ten percent. Right? The ten okay. percent and and the 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 mid the, the mid gap is one of the possible is how this ten percent happens if we get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, humanoid is definitely something worth calling out uh, on the Mad Lion side. I think uh, he's had some huge games. He's had some moments where he got punished for stuff, but I think kind of everybody has. Like Showmaker has also had some some plays where he's kind of uh, it's a little int. You know, Humanoid has had a couple of those, but he's also like his his Zoe, like landing his Zoe bubbles in the middle of crowds on just the right target. Had some great stuff. He's had some really big playmaking. Uh, he's probably been one of the standout players of the entire tournament to me so far. Yeah, uh, let's talk a little bit more about yeah. Mad Lions, right? So if we, we divide teams into the schools of thought, the map control school of thought, the farm efficiency school of thought, Mad Lions is a European team. As most European teams shaped by G2R, they will be in the map control school of thought, right? Yeah. And uh, this, this is one of the reasons why I think that they should be able to, to do quite well. If they start to identify that these are the particular steps they need to take to, 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 to beat dumb one, hint, hint, watch my videos. <laughs> <laughs> um, if they are able to find that, they're able to, to they are able to play on two lanes. They should be able to get um, get wins over Dom One because Dom One, I think they're very tunneled into the one style. They really haven't they haven't really evolved much past that. And if they're able to contest them, I think mid jungle definitely has been the strongest point for for Mad Lions in all of this so far. Humanoid and Elio, yeah, I actually thought that PSG Talon was a... We can talk about PSG Talon later on as well, right? But I actually thought PSG Talon was a quite a decent team headed into this. Mm -hmm. But there was a very clear desync between uh, Maple and River. And uh, PSG having Doggo in the bot lane as well hurt them as well instead of Unify, yeah. right? But just to talk about mid-jungle, I felt that Mad Lions were able to beat out PSG twice in the group stage just because of the mid-jungle difference. Yeah, not uh, to say that they are they are worse players individually, but I think Humanoid and Elio just work together as a mid jungle unit sure. a lot better than uh, Maple and River did, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the, the difference maker for them. And if we talk about okay, who can who can beat RNG? If I have RNG as the favorites in this tournament, who can beat RNG? I would think that this has to be a map control school of thought team, which Mad Lions seems to be the only one who who takes that category. Uh, I think PSG might be able to do so, but they were just making too many mistakes within the the map control school of yeah. thought as was well. It, so... Was it a Mad Lions game when Doggo got caught? It was like the first time they played when Doggo got caught yes. rotating into the river like three minutes in and and that just like swung the game so hard against them and just stuff like that. Like, okay, I, it looked like they didn't communicate exactly how they were playing this out. Like they had a kind of a weird set of jungle pathing that had the potential to work out really well for them, but then they just weren't standing close enough together when they moved somewhere stuff like that like the kind of thing that, that i think ends up making psg look worse than they actually are because yeah i was i was actually pretty impressed with with the way they played especially given that they have that they have a substitute player um you know psg and playing well with substitutes at an international event seems to be a bit of a thing uh, i mean let's let's be honest here right the worlds that was an upgrade right Kogia yeah. and uniboy was a huge upgrade for them but this time around it's it's a very it's a very clear downgrade from unified to 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 dongle yeah. So, uh, I think, you know, I think a lot of people uh, make the, w might make the assumption coming in like, oh, hey, look, the four, you know, quote unquote, major region teams um, should be the top four at this event, you know, China, Korea, Europe, uh, North America. 
PSG might get just like a cut, put below a line in a lot of people's expectations. Do you think they are actually like a notch below or a line below Madden C9 or are they in the exact same group? I don't really think they're a notch below them. I would I would say that uh, PSG and C9 are about the same. Sure. Are about the same tier. And then I would have... Uh, I would have... And you put Matt higher. Matt higher. I would mm-hmm. have Matt higher them at this point of time. Right. Yeah, I because think that's reasonable. I think that Matt Lions, they looked um, really shaky in their own domestic finals because they they were very good at using particular tools, but they used the, 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 the wrong tools for their... They used the tools they were good at for the wrong problems, right? Like you, you mm. start and play Udyr against Hackrim, whereas in, in that matchup, what you want to do is you want to start stacking the Drake so that the Hackrim, um, so that the Hackrim finds it difficult to hit his points, right? But they played the, the Udyr like a Lilia, where they played for the Raptor invades, and then all of a sudden the Hackrim team is the one with three Drakes, and you're thinking, wait, what just happened over there? <laughs> and then the Udyr is 40 CS up, but he can't really win the game at that point of time, right? But they're really good at playing around around mid jungle, which is still a very important concept, right? As much as I'm talking about, okay, it's all about the mid game macros. It's about the, the the farm versus the the map control school of thought thought here, and I think that they're still really good when it comes to getting those leads in the early game, which is what something that I I think that they can match toe to toe with Dom one in the particular matchup. And if they find the, the map control solutions in the mid game, they should be able to to win on the matchup. Sorry, I'm just jumping all over the place right now, but yeah. just to, to jump back to the PSG, right? And I think that the PSG. Um, what was the question again? I've completely forgotten. Yeah, I just trying to just I think in general just trying to get a sense of the read of if we you know of kind of the tier list of, of these five teams and that's not intended to disrespect Pentanet, but like I think they've achieved a great thing in this tournament already and good for them. But you know, Mad C9 and PSG is especially you know how how those teams kind of stack up relative to each other in in, in level. Is, oh yes, is, the tierings, right? So yeah. C9 and PSG, where I, I think that they have good ideas, be it in the, the map control school of thought or farm efficiency school of thought, but then there are very clear flaws in the way that they're playing the game. Like, like even within their own schools of thought, you can see that, okay, these are mistakes that they're making. Like, I think in the match that they had, like, Mad Lions versus... Um, the, the second time they played against PSG mm-hmm. as well, like Doggo should have pushed an additional wave top, but he didn't go for it. And as a result of that, they lost the Drake over to the Mad Lions and stuff, where they are still making mistakes within their own school of thought as well. So they aren't even masters of their own school of thought. Whereas mm-hmm. C9, if they want to play the farm efficiency game, then they're not doing it at, at the same level at which uh, Dumb One is doing it at the same time as well. Where you simply in three lanes, and then they still try to play for opens. Cams were in three lanes. I think this is the first game that they played, right? And how C9 threw the game against Dumb One. They open up on three lanes, whereas it's stop gangplank shows spot blabber goes and tries to go for the mark on the raptors and then they lose the game of that because they get chased down by the nar from from that point so you still see all these mistakes coming through so i wouldn't say that they've really mastered their school of thought i wouldn't say mad lions is exactly there but it's definitely a lot more advanced as compared to psg or uh, cloud nine at this point of time uh, but i can't put mad lions so i can't put mad lions in the same tier as damon and, and rng at this point of time but they are competent enough where I can say that I see a world in which uh, Mad Lions victory happens. So tier one is uh, RNG and Dumb One, but mm-hmm. my personal bias would say that I think RNG wins it because I think the map control school of thought is better at the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Mad Lions in tier 1.5 and then tier two is C9 and um, PSG. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when I look at <clears throat> the way, you know, Mad C9 PSG all played out at that group stage, I think... You know, putting them only a half tier apart is is 
is very a good way to do it because I think they are quite close and I think there are definitely ways that the games can play out. You know, I, I think especially Mad versus C9 will come down a lot to who makes which mistakes at which times. Um, C9 have been losing a lot off of just silly individual mistakes showing in the wrong place at the wrong time or obviously the blabber flash or scuttle crab kind of stuff where it's like, okay, there's something going on and they need to like get some jitters out or whatever it is. Um, but Mad have also had some really big kind of mid-game mistakes and throws that that they have to work on. And, and I think a, a lot of the, the matchup between those two teams will come down to, you know, who's able to better kind of get a grip on themselves and, and clean up that mistake count um, rather than kind of more fundamental things about about the matchups or about the play styles or stuff like that i think obviously those are very important but we could see those games being decided more on mistakes rather than on macro or mechanics or, or that kind of stuff but that's that's my take on it you can uh, get a, a shallower but more polished and beautiful version of that in uh the run it episode that's going to come out this week which is about a comparison of mad lines and cloud nine so that that'll hopefully be fun uh and i'm sorry psg i left you out of that video because it would just make it more complex. <laughs> Everybody but, over, always overlooks the LMS team. Right? I'm just going to go on a mini rant over here. Over there. As somebody it. who comes from the PCS region, every time I go over there and I hear the, the Western analysts like, yeah, are the, are the Wildcard teams going to overtake take the LMS teams finally or the PCS teams fair. finally in this yeah. tournament? There's just such a big gap between them. I actually found it kind of funny because I wondered if he was doing it out of pettiness when they interviewed um, PSG's manager, Glenn, and then Glenn put a Cloud9 in seventh place because if <laughs> I'm going to go back two years or one year, that would happen where most... I, I'm, I, I can guarantee you I can find a Western analyst who have put a, an LMS team right in seventh place and as to where... Where, where Glenn would have put them, like like below not just one but two like wildcard teams or something. Yeah. So I, I just I just find it kind of funny that that, that happened in that context because I think for for quite a while uh, the LMS I wouldn't say that they have had equal but I would say it's close to mm-hmm. being equal as the NA's performances in international events. Well, any yes they had like the MSI finals from CLG and then Team Liquid more more recently as well. But the the performances from LMS is not to say that they are one that they're clearly far behind. Yeah. The rest of the major regions. I mean, it, there was certainly a point when it was not four major regions or however else you want to, like the language around this keeps changing, but it was five regions, right? Like it was, they were all part of that group. It was Korea, China, Europe, North America, and LMS were all part of, um, you know, China meaning LPL, meaning uh, they were all part of the that kind of group together. And Flash Wolves especially were an AHQ where we're making all these big charges deep in tournaments. And things just kind of changed over time a little bit, but I, I think our understanding of kind of regional tiering is uh, is definitely evolving. That at this point now, if it, you'd probably more likely say um, LPL, LCK, LEC are top three, then you've got NA and PCS kind of around the same area. Like that's how it should we'll be presented. The PCS in there as well. I actually like the the way MSI sure. tier at, at this point of yep. time. I I, f- I feel that the tier one and tier two tierings are pretty accurate in terms of where where we'll place these regions as a whole but uh, it's just really unfortunate that we haven't gotten to see vietnam play for more than more than a year and a half at this point of time mm-hmm. shout out yeah. to to kati who has qualified for all three international events and has not been able to attend a single one yeah it's rough hopefully by worlds this year we'll be able to to get the vietnamese team in there uh well yeah i think this has all been really interesting let's let's take a little bit of time just to wrap this off with letting letting people uh submit some questions in here and it's it's possible generally to to uh 
put some questions in for the guest in advance on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash elixir, I try to announce the guest as early as possible before the show actually happens. Um, you can submit questions there. Or uh, if you watch live while we're streaming this on Twitch, you can put questions in the chat. So we have a question from Liposuction Lane, which is, uh, do you think that, that orgs or, or pro teams put enough emphasis on informing their decisions through uh, computer-assisted data analysis like machine learning, uh, as happens in other sports? Well, I have a very cynical take on this, right? Where it's, uh, where I can't talk about organizations at all, but just personally from, from my point of view, we, we talk about the eye test, we talk about how we make decisions. Um, I haven't really used all that much of, of big data sets or machine learning to, to do that. The only one I would say that I really use is um, op.gg. Games of Legends and of course Oracle's Elixir to like, inform me about, about certain stats, but I wouldn't use it on a very uh, in-depth level. It's just a starting point to figure out, okay, what are the things I'm looking for? I have a certain theory about how this team plays, then I'll just check it out against the stats and I'm just checking back and forth. I wouldn't say that it forms like like the backbone or the bread and butter towards my approach, like you like how you would see in certain sports where you have a lot of emphasis on measuring things. And I think that uh, two years ago, I wrote a, a short article, right? It's showing, expressing my cynicism towards this whole move towards and i think this is when people are talking about money balling in esports and yeah. stuff like that expressing my cynicism towards the the, the over glorification of the use of uh, big data and statistics in esports and in a game where you have a two-patch cycle and the game just changes on such such a high high frequency yeah i think there, there are a lot of limitations on it and i've you know i've often been in in that position of um, people getting very excited about seeing the kind of things I do at Oracle's Elixir and saying, hey, we're, we're going to go moneyball this. Like, we're going to go do what baseball does and use data to find players that, you know, the traditional scouts aren't finding and all these kinds of things. It, it is very exciting and it's fun to talk about. But I'm often in, in the position of putting the brakes on things and saying, hey, I work with the data <laughs> to such an extent that I can point out why that's not possible. And let's focus on not trying to emulate what is done with data in other contexts and traditional sports or other things. Let's focus on what it can do in League of Legends and iterate on that and, and you know, be our own, uh, our own sub-industry here because I think otherwise you can get really carried away with, with trying to make the data answer questions it's not able to answer rather than focusing on the questions that it is and, and the uses it is able to have. Because um, obviously I do think that, that stats and data can be very valuable in League of Legends, but um, you need to apply, apply it appropriately for sure. I actually think it's the other way around because we live in a world where League of Legends and esports is entirely digital, right? So getting this information is a lot easier. So it's what people have access to. It's what it's what almost everybody has access to. Whereas finding the intangibles and finding okay, what does this player what is not being shown on these statistics, right? What's the yeah. X factor for these players is what is missing in the way that we approach um this form of player analysis whereas in sports is usually the other way around where you have a lot of uh, personal recommendations i think this player is really good and then you needed to go one step deeper and then you needed to count like number of passes completed number of passes made uh, a number of minutes with the ball i mean i'm more familiar with uh european football so mm. that's where i'm I'm using these examples from mm. to, to kind of determine is this player really the, the profile of player that we want right in terms of assessing him so i think it's just the, the nature of how uh, sports and esports manifest where sports in sports the the inherent sorry the intangibles is mo much more apparent and the statistics is a lot harder to track because you need all sorts of like motion capture yeah um 
technology to be able to find the statistics to, to count like number of passes completed and stuff like that. Whereas for esports, it's the other way around, where the stats like okay, number of times you've won, here's one on this champion. How how far ahead is he at 15 minutes in the game is something that we have at the top of our fingertips, and then it's the intangibles that we find difficult to assess. Well, especially with the value, like how important in League of Legends things like team comms are, or just information tracking and awareness and, and stuff like that, things that you can't really measure. And actually, um, there have been contexts where I've, I've played with the idea of trying to uh, get data on team comms for the help for for pro teams double training, but it's it's super super difficult to do, and it's unclear whether you'd actually get value out of it. But it's kind of a fun thing to try to explore. So, but anyways, uh, let's 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 run one more question here to wrap things up. Um, Yanbu wants to know, do you think C9 has a chance, let's just say any chance, or maybe put it at what chance, <laughs> of beating Damwon in a best of five uh, if Damwon keep playing at the, the level they've been showing so far? Uh, I wouldn't say zero. Yeah, obviously That's they have a chance, but how much? <laughs> it's, it's perks percentage, right? Because the, the thing about perks is that he, he always brings a certain magic to us to, to us, the team, and I think that C9 right now, they, they need to figure out which school of thought they want to be in. Do, do they want to meet... Do, do they want to match Damwon at their own game, or do they want to play for the map control school of thought? And I think that that's something that they really have to figure out. Um, but any any time we talk about C9, right? We have I just have to figure, look at this. Look, look at the mid laner. He's perks. He's he's a veteran of multiple multiple um, international tournaments. And every tournament he plays in, the team just gets better after every round, right? So now that yeah. we've finished the first round, the playing stage, it's not like the first time G2 has went into planes and then they struggle against a wildcard team. And then they, that, that, I'm thinking of 2018, right? Where they struggle against a wildcard team and then they went on, they just quickly did our groups and then they beat RNG in in one of the biggest upsets. I, and I'm yeah. sitting that that's the biggest upset in League of Legends history, right? Where they were able to, to pull it off. So, um, I don't think I can give a number because there's no real way to measure this. Because once again, well, it just goes back to the question of we are dealing with the intangibles here, what <laughs> perks brings to the team, how quickly he helps the team level up. And I think that people have been praising the, the Cloud9 coaching stuff and all that, all that kind of stuff uh, throughout the split. So this is where they, they get their stuff tested, right? They get their stuff mm -hmm. tested. They had a week showing early on. They, they look like aren't really sure how to approach this meta. Can they figure it out in time for the Rumble stage? Can they figure it out in time? Uh, for a potential best of five against Dumbo and Kia. Um, given Annie's track record, no. But given Perk's <laughs> track record, <laughs> maybe I have to say, he, he is the Western GOAT if they can do it, right? Yeah. He will be the GOAT. He will be the GOAT. I'm going to say Perk, Perks will be the GOAT if they can turn things around and they can beat Dumbo and Kia. Not to say that sure. it's extremely difficult to do, but where Cloud9 is right now and getting there, I think it's. Um, It'll be a very, very impressive feat if Perks can, all the coaching stuff can rally the, rally the team together, fix their problems, and then be able to pull off a strategy that lets them beat them one. Well, we were talking about the 90-50-10 concept earlier, and you already used up your 10% on saying Mad Lions could win the whole thing at 10%, which means that you have no choice but to put the 50 on this. So, you know, <laughs> I don't make the rules. That's just... <laughs> it's just you should let me dig my own grave where I say that 50% PSG makes top 4 and then 90% Cloud9 beats someone in the best of 5 <laughs> there you go there you go <laughs> spicy there's no way you can flip it around and say Damwon beats 90% to beat C9 so uh, of course Cloud9 I would say it's probably more likely that Cloud9 end up facing RNG in the first in the semifinals in which case we might not get to see this at all but you know we will find out uh, tournaments are always unpredictable to a certain degree 
Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me on, on the show today, Jensen. Uh, what's the best way for people to follow your work? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jensen Gold League of Legends, and I'll be posting my YouTube content there. Great, and I'll, I'll make sure the link to that is in the show notes and also to uh, to your YouTube channel as well. Uh, and thank you to everyone for, for listening, sitting in with us. You can support the True Sight Podcast at patreon.com slash oracleselixir. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as anchor.fm slash truesight. And make sure you check out the Oracle's Elixir Discord server where we talk about League of Legends esports topics, data science, a lot of other things. Uh, links for all of those will be in the show notes as well. This has been the True Sight Podcast, and I'm Tim Sevenhusen. Thanks for listening. And thanks for having me. Thank you.